and we'll go from there. So open your Bibles to Acts 16. <clears throat> While you're doing that, I'll go ahead and pray to kick us off today. Lord, we just thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to be here as a church, Lord. I pray that we uh, are uh, discipled today, Lord, uh, through the Holy Spirit and through the preaching of your word. And God, I just ask that um, you begin to um, just work in our hearts, Lord, uh, mold us, Lord, into Christ-likeness, uh, grow us, Lord, into, uh, into uh, the knowledge of truth, Lord, into, into Christ, Lord. Help us to, um, to be like him, to, to think like him, Lord. And the only way we can do that, Lord, is by reading and studying our words. So I pray that you prick in our hearts, Lord, to, to seek truth through your word, Lord. We thank you, we love you, we pray in your name, amen. All right, so Acts chapter 16, we're starting a new study, and I'll let Owen give the introduction to that in a minute, but <clears throat> we're going to go into Philippians, and so today we're going to read in Acts chapter 16, because here's where the book of Philippians began, and our young disciples, uh, we uh, are going through Galatians, and we did the same thing in Galatians chapter 15, we read in between the white lines, right Noah, this is where Galatians was written, and so we're teaching the kids uh, the chronological um, history um, of Galatians and as well as Philippians here today with, uh, with the church body. So Galatians chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40, okay? And we're going to go through verse 40, and we're going to start up here, and we're just going to read one verse each and go all the way through. No, I'm just kidding. I'll read it, okay? All right, so 11 through 40, so I'm going to have you sit rather than stand, okay? All right, so setting sail <clears throat> from, from Trous. We ran a straight course to uh, Samothrace. Samothrace, yes. And on, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And sitting down, we began speaking to the women who had assembled, and a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, whose heart the Lord opened to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her husband had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a servant girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune, by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her. And it left at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit had left, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd joined together to attack them, and the chief magistrates, tearing their garments off of them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted them with many wounds, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, who have received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, and fastened their feet in, in the stocks. <clears throat> Verse 25. 
But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly with his whole household because he had believed in God. Now, when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Having beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, they have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them, and they had brought them out. They kept requesting them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them and left. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for for Paul and his faithfulness to you, Lord. We thank you for this jailer and the testimony, Lord, that's there. And I just thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that was just expressed all over these passages that we just read. And God, I just want to thank you, Lord, for um, this this next journey that Paul's going to go through after the book of Philippians. And Lord, we just thank you for all that you do in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. God, thank you for the opportunity just to declare your truth through the songs that we've sung. I pray that you be glorified and that the declaration that comes not only from our lips but also from our hearts is that all we have is Christ and at the end of it all, that is the most important thing. To have eternity with you that is guaranteed to us through a relationship with Christ. May we live out this life in you in obedience, God. And I pray as you guide us into this new book today of Philippians that we'd be encouraged by it, we'd be edified by it, but we'd also be challenged and admonished by it as well, God, that you would grow us more in the knowledge of who you are through our study of this book, that you would enrich our lives with it, and that we'd be able to live it out in this world around us to your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may be seated, and as you take a seat... <laughs> That is just one of my many titles. Huh? <laughs> As you take your seat, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians? Book of Philippians. I'm not sure exactly how long we were in the books of First, Second, and Third John, but really enjoyed walking through those books with you and some deeper study. As those of you who have been attending our church for 
a long time or even a short amount of time have probably learned that we teach expository here. We don't take just topics and teach upon a topic and find scriptures that match the topic, but rather we pick a book, we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We do not want to miss anything in God's truth that he has already prepared for us in his word. Um, What we're going to do today is an introduction first to the book. And recognize that when we do an introduction, a lot of that is me relying upon other commentators, other biblical scholars who have taken the time and invested in studying these books for years, studying the setting and the context of these books. So I'm going to be drawing a lot from them in our preparation for getting into this book and getting into the deep study of this book. So when we are citing other literature besides the scripture, recognize that we don't hold that those are authoritative and all truth. Um, So caveat it with that. We will be looking at, you know, many uh, different uh, sources, although I won't reference them all, uh, but man is flawed, God is not. So be like the Bereans as we challenge you often from this pulpit to be careful with our study of the scripture, be careful what you're hearing from man, truth, everything, ground it into God's word. Acts chapter 17 is where we find Paul and Silas entering into Berea, actually after they left Philippi, and calling those Bereans there noble-minded because they did not just trust in what the man was telling them, but then grounding that in God's word. So um, before we do that, before we get into the introduction, we're going to read the passage of Scripture that is at the very outset of this book, and it's Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. We're only going to confine the teaching this morning to verses 1 and 2. We're not going to get very far into it because we do have an introduction. I don't want to keep you here for an extended amount of time, but if you have found your way there to the book, the letter to the church in Philippi, we are going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine you are for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, this letter is written to a church in the city of Philippi, which is a town in Macedonia. It's one of the it is the first church that Paul established when he entered into the region of Macedonia. Many of you have probably heard of the Macedonian call, uh, which was actually a hindrance by the Spirit from going into uh, Asia Minor, which I believe was Paul's intent, but something happened along the way. Paul was frustrated by the Spirit and not able to go where he wanted to go, but God using something uh, along the way in Paul's missionary journey there, sending them into the region of Macedonia, which is what we all benefit from because the gospel is proceeding into Europe and then the reason we all are here today is we have the gospel spreading through Europe, spreading to the, the U.S. when the, the, it was colonized, and thus we have God's uh, providential plan being initiated here as Paul is going now into Macedonia, into that region, and there is located the town of Philippi, and I think we actually have a map that Nick pulled up for us as one of those last-minute things, and I'm glad our guys back there know what they're doing. They do it very well because <laughs> they can respond to some of these last-minute requests. We see an area or a regional photograph here. You can see Italy. You can see the area of Macedonia. There's Thessalonica. There's Philippi, and also Berea is in that region. That would be modern-day Greece. And so this is where uh, the church in Philippi is located. 
Um, this was written when Paul was in his first imprisonment, probably in the city of Rome. And the reason why we think it's the city of Rome is there are several references found in the book of Philippians where Paul uses the terminology of being under imperial guard, and that's found in verses one, verse 13 of chapter 1, uh, depending on what translation it would be, imperial or palace guard. And then also he refers to the saints of Caesar's household in chapter 4, verse 22. And there is some disagreement among commentators about whether this was really written from Rome imprisonment or whether he was imprisoned somewhere else. But most of them line up with the conclusion that this was written from Rome. And it was more towards the end of his second year of imprisonment. And, that's, and the reason we think that is because Paul writes about his case coming near to being decided on. And that's found in chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, where he was sensing that they would soon arrive at a decision on his case. Okay, so this is his first imprisonment. Uh, this is one where he's under Roman guard. He has guards assigned to him. It is said that these guards were actually chained to Paul, that wherever he went, whether he went to his living room to watch some TV or he went... <laughs> He, well, probably not at that time, but whether he was uh, eating or whether he was sleeping or whether he was, you know, going to the facilities, the Romans guards were there with him. He was constantly under their oversight. Uh, there is very little argued about who the writer of this letter was. Sometimes you have a lot of debate for certain books of the Bible as to who wrote them, but most agree that this is Paul. Uh, and there's a little argument about that. And the period in which it was written was somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D. So about a two-year window there where Paul would have written the letter to the Philippians from Roman prison and Paul, of course, being the writer. Now let's talk a little bit about the city of Philippi. The original name is Cranidus, and that means little fountains. So a lot of springs or fountains that were in the area, uh, Carlsbad actually got its name because there were springs here, the Flumes uh, has springs, and they were looked at being similar to those in, somewhere in Czechoslovakia, there's a Carlsbad, so they named uh, Carlsbad Carlsbad because of the little fountains that we had here, so anyway, that's a fun fact. This, was, this name of Cranidus was later changed to Philippi, and is named after Philip II of Macedon, and he is the father of Alexander the Great. So a pretty prominent name there. Originally, it was a Roman republic. All right, so it's kind of isolated from Roman rule, but in 42 BC, the armies of Antony and Octavian defeated those of Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi, and it ended their established republic, and they tran it transferred the city under the empire and thereby making it a Roman colony. Okay, so it's no longer a republic, but now it has become a Roman colony occupied by Rome. Many of the Roman soldiers who had been part of this battle took up residence in the city of Philippi. And MacArthur writes here, so I'm citing a source, MacArthur writes, as a colony, Philippi had autonomy from the provincial government and the same rights granted to cities in Italy, including the use of Roman law exemption from some taxes, and Roman citizenship for its residents. Being a colony was also the source of much civic pride for the Philippians, who used Latin as their official language, adopted Roman customs, 
and modeled their city government after that of Italian cities. Acts and Philippians both reflect Philippi's status as a Roman colony. So that's a little bit more about the city of Philippi, but let's talk about the church in Philippi now, as that is whom this letter is written to. The church in Philippi, as I mentioned earlier, was founded by Paul. It was during the Apostles' second missionary journey there, and that's why Ray read Acts chapter 16. Uh, we, we were following their second missionary journey there as they went through Philippi. And here are some of the memorable encounters that we read at the very beginning of the service. And thank you, Ray, for reading that for us. But we notice there that Paul encounters a very devout woman of God. Her name is Lydia, and she is a seller of purple, which probably meant that she was a very wealthy lady. Purple dye was very expensive. It was difficult to come by, and if one was selling purple or the dye purple and manufacturing goods made of that, they were likely a very wealthy person. It's also assumed that there must not have been enough men in the city to form an official synagogue there. Because when Paul and Silas went into the city, they didn't go to the synagogue. They found them worshiping by the river because there was a requirement that there had to be at least 10 Jewish men who were heads of household in order to establish a synagogue in a city. So because the lack of a synagogue it meant that there was likely not a, a strong Jewish population there uh, to the, the degree where there were 10 Jewish men that were head of households. And there in chapter 16, verse 13 of Acts, we see them encountering these devout women who met outside the city and was what was called a place of prayer. And this was the Ganges River is where they met. And it was here that Paul preached the gospel to Lydia and the others that were gathered there. They were saved by God. They were converted. And after that, the local church likely gathered at the home of Lydia, being that she was wealthy, she probably had a large home, and now that there was a Christian church established there, those saved by the grace of God now were gathering to worship probably at the home of Lydia in Philippi. Paul and Silas were also arrested there. Um, this was because a demon-possessed slave girl was freed of her demon possession and this impacted her owner greatly because he was benefiting from her financially because she was able to, uh, to practice divination. She was able to tell or forecast these future events, kind of like modern-day fortune tellers. But a result of this demon being cast from her is that now this owner, this master of her being a slave of his, um, he was impacted financially. So he probably stirred up the magistrates in the city and as a result, Paul and Silas were beaten and they were thrown into prison in a very hasty way because no one checked to see if they were actually Roman citizens. And of course, Paul and Silas did not say that they were. Um, after they were put in prison, there was a miraculous jailbreak. And it was not of man's doing or man's power, but them worshiping God in the prison, being in stocks, in chains, and then we see an earthquake happen, and they were de delivered miraculously by God. And because they were, all the prison doors flew open, everyone in the prison was able to flee, and the poor jailer was so distraught over this, he knew that it was likely a death sentence for him, that he was just going to end it all and kill himself. Uh, but rather than doing that, Paul stayed his hand, he... Um, brought the gospel to him. This man was saved, and it also says that he and his entire household were saved, and they were baptized. So that's a, another pretty significant event that happened while Paul and Silas 
were in Philippi for the first time. And then we also have the story of the panicked magistrates who later discovered that those who they had put in prison, Paul and Silas, were Roman citizens. And as Roman citizens, they were accorded some special favors and they were not to be beaten and put into prison without a fair trial. And so they knew that this... This could bring the Roman authorities down hard upon them. It could be elevated up to Caesar, and they themselves could be executed for having done that. So they wanted to keep things quiet. They wanted Paul and Silas to leave the area, and uh, Paul and Silas, of course, wanted to uh, stay around and and give them a little bit of heartburn. But eventually they, they did leave, but Paul did return later in his subsequent mission trips. We also see that the church in Philippi was a very generous church, and they were very helpful to Paul. Uh, While in prison in Rome, Paul had received a delegation that had been sent by the church in Philippi to minister to his needs. They were big financial supporters of Paul's ministry, um, contributing also to the church in Jerusalem when they were experiencing a famine. The church in Philippi stepped up, and they wanted to help out, and Paul, he often uh, uh, references the the generosity of the church in Philippi. And here they are sending another contribution to Paul. He's writing this letter, one, to thank them for that contribution, but also they did more than just send money. They sent someone in per- person, and that was Epaphroditus to minister to Paul's needs. And Epaphroditus had probably succumbed to some illness either along the way or while he was in Rome, And such that he almost died is what Paul says. And Paul wants to send him back to them with this letter because he he wants them to be encouraged that he is well again after they had heard that he had fallen ill. And Paul's sending back Epaphroditus to Philippi with the letter. Something else that's interesting about the book of Philippians is there are no Old Testament quotes found in the book of Philippians. And there are very little historical references. The main theological thrust of this letter is found in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And you can turn there and read it, but we're not going to read it today. We want to save some of that for when we get there. But there is a description of Christ's humiliation, but also his exaltation. And it's seen as one of the most profound and crucial teachings on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we will be spending some time there a little bit later in our study. Another main theme is pursuing Christ-likeness, seeking to be molded, shaped more into the image of Christ, being the defining element of our spiritual growth in Christ. And then finally, and what I see surfacing as the main theme for me in my reading through the book of Philippians is that of joy, and a joy that can be had despite the circumstances that we may be going through in life. We see it as a God-given joy. It's manifested within by the presence of His Spirit in the life of every believer. And we shouldn't say that we can only have this joy. We can only be joyful if our circumstances in life change. Sometimes we can dwell a lot on the circumstances. And we can think, well, if something, this event would just happen, if I would receive a financial blessing, then I could be joyful. Or if my children would just listen to me more, then I could be joyful. Or if my husband and wife could listen to me more. Or if I only had someone back in my life, then I could be joyful. Or if I just was able to move to this other town, then I could be joyful. But this is not a circumstance-dependent kind of joy that Paul is writing of. If Paul was writing of this kind of joy, a worldly joy, how could he do that when he's in Roman prison? 
when he has guard changed to him wherever, wherever he goes, he could not write of a joy that was circumstantial if it was based on circumstances. This is a joy that can be had despite what is going on in our lives. And I think you will see that along with me as we study this book together, that the main theme is that of a God-like joy that we possess as believers in Jesus Christ that is manifested by the Holy Spirit living within the heart of every believer. It's that attitude of the inner spirit. It's having our heart changed in salvation such that we can have and possess this joy as ours a joy that Paul will write later about in this book, surpasses all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So it is ours in Christ, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we can be joyously content, abounding or without. Whether we have lots or whether we have little, our joy is in Christ. And you will probably remember that the main overarching theme to all the letters that John wrote as we studied them, we read about a love there that was a God-given love. It was an agape love. It's a love that rises up and overcomes circumstances that doesn't retaliate but reciprocates in, in love regardless of what one does to us. And so this joy is found, it's a only a God-type joy, not in based upon what the world does to us or what our circumstances are, but because it rises up from within. Now let's look again at these verses. So that's just a little bit that captures the background to this book. We'll be talking a little bit more about it and who the authors are, uh, particularly Paul, but Holy Spirit through Paul. But let's read Philippians 1 and 1 through 5 once more. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God all in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul, the first name at the beginning of this letter, so let's just take some time to contemplate or consider Paul and some things about his life. Remember that Paul was Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. He was the one that was breathing out threats against the Christian church. He was radically changed by his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, and it was there that Paul was saved by God's grace. Turn to Acts chapter 9 with me. Acts chapter 9. And let's just real quick read about Paul's conversion here. Beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither 
ate nor drank. So there was Paul's miraculous encounter. He was blinded by the very light of the Lord, the very presence of the Lord that shone there, and he was rendered blind. And later on, a prophet, Ananias, was sent by God to him to tell Paul what his marching orders would be from that moment forward. And Paul never wavered from them. It was to go and to proclaim the gospel to all who would hear, and not just the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So that was Paul, in a nutshell, Um, just kind of considering someone who had been so changed by his encounter with the Lord. He had violently sought those who had converted to Christianity. His Christianity was an affront to him. He was very offended by those who were claiming to be Christians, who maybe he went to the synagogue with, and now he was going and he was seeking out those who had been saved And he was taking them into custody, he was having them beaten, he was having them thrown into prison, also having them executed. You see that he was there holding the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen, who was the first martyr in the books of Acts. That's where Saul really first appears. But he went from Saul the persecutor to Paul, a sinner that was saved by God's grace. And that's really where we all were before we had we have, were saved by God, that we were impacted by God's grace in a saving way, that we all had the things in our past, we all were born into that sin and then have since had a rebirth and a renewal of our lives. And so we, like Paul, should definitely see a change, a change that has taken hold of us so that we're living our lives for God We see God having a God-channeled zeal for the gospel. We see Paul having a God-channeled zeal for the gospel, and it was anywhere and everywhere that God took him, abounding in joy, though he had lost it all. Is that us? Is that me? If I had my life so radically changed, where everything I once knew that was once dear to me, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He probably had a pretty good standing in the community. He likely was was fairly wealthy, and very well supported, and he left all of that for the sake of following Christ, and yet he was abounding in joy, and that's what we will see later in this letter. So when we consider Paul, look to him as that inspiration of that no turning back to who we once were, and our aim is to be with the Lord, identify with him, being conformed more and more into his image. We find there also with Paul is his faithful companion, Timothy. And he is more here a co-laborer with Paul rather than a co-author of the letter. Uh, We are not to think that he, along with Paul, is putting this together. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, of course, it is the Spirit writing this letter. But Paul writes in the first person singular, which is why we understand it being solely from Paul. And then he, when he speaks of Timothy, he always speaks of Timothy in the third person. So that's why we're not to see... Timothy is a co-author of this letter. A little bit about Timothy, that he was with Paul on the missionary journey when they went to the church in Philippi when it was founded there for the first time. And he had also been back with Paul on his third missionary journey, um, both to the region of Greece and then they went back through on their way back. So Timothy and Paul both had been through Philippi and stayed some time there at least uh, three times that were told in Scripture. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21 through 22, just some quick references here that affirm that. 
It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's sending Timothy ahead of him back through the Macedonia, and that meant that they were going through Thessalonica, they were going through Philippi and also Berea. And then again, we find a reference to this in Acts chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, where Timothy, again, is in Philippi. So there was a lot of familiarity with who Timothy was among those believers in Philippi. And it must have been a comfort for them to know that he was there with Paul, that you see these two uh, co-laborers in Christ together. Paul encountered Timothy and Lystra. We see that at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, and it was believed that he was around 15 years old at the time. He was half Gentile and half Jewish. It is, um, his dad was not a believer, but his mother and his grandmother were. And Timothy was a loyal companion of Paul, and he grew very quickly in the faith to being, even be an appointed elder. Um, and there's a lot more that we could say about Timothy. In fact, Timothy, First and Second Timothy, was one of the books that we were praying about and considering going into after we left the books of John. So those could be on the table once again when we live the book of Philippians, and I'm sure there will be a lot more there that we'll find out about Timothy if we do go into those books. Also see that Paul, at the beginning of this, when he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, if you're very familiar with most of Paul's letters, he usually cites his apostleship credentials here at the beginning. He leaves those out entirely. And rather, rather than saying that he is an apostle, he says that he is a servant of Christ. He and Timothy are servants of Christ, better to be understood as a slave, but we'll talk about that here in a, mem- in a moment because one of the things, uh, by leaving out his apostleship reference, he does this with two other books. That's the first and second Thessalonians, um, oh, and also Philemon. But if he were really laying out some strong rebukes, um, if he had saw a need for church discipline, or if he was coming against some false teaching that was creeping into the church, we see that's normally when he brings in his apostleship credentials because he cites back to his authority as an apostle when that is the case. But what we read in the book of Philippians, we really don't find any admonishment for the church. We find more of an encouragement. Many commentators call the book of Philippians the beloved Philippians. Is If y'all are studying the book of Galatians, you've probably seen where Paul immediately launches into rebuke for the city in Galatia. He doesn't do that here. So it's probably the reason that his apostleship is left out of the beginning of this book. It reads more of a friend to a friend that's full of gratitude and having confidence in their faith. Now coming back to this this term, servants, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And it's not just servants. I don't really like the way my ESV renders this word. I, I like bond servant of Christ or bond slave of Christ, as others' translations might render it. First, a bond servant of Christ is what Paul says he and Timothy are. This is more important for him to get across to the church in Philippi that he along with them, all of us who are found in Christ, who have a relationship with God, God through faith in Jesus Christ, that we are servants of Christ. And we need to consider ourselves like Paul and Timothy, that this is our standing with God as well. And that Greek word for servant here is dolos, and it means slave. 
or a bond slave. And I want to real quickly go to this passage out of Exodus 21, 2 through 6, that speaks of what a bond slave was and what was accorded to them as a slave in a household. Because when we think of the word slave, our minds often go back to you know, a dark American history and a time that we're not very proud of, but this is not the kind of slave that we find in the Bible. Exodus 21, 2 through 6 says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. But then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And often there is that shrinking back from this word for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. And this is not condoning slavery in in any regard, but it is part of society back then, so it's written about. But we see that the Bible also has a very different depiction of what slavery is than we find in our recent past. So first of all, the treatment of slaves was to be like that of someone who was in your own family. They served for a period of time and then they had to be set free or they had to be offered that opportunity to be set free after service of 11 years. And that was part of the law. That was a requirement. And they were also given of the flock. So they were given things to take with them. They were given of the harvest. They were also given of the wine vat, which was very uh, part of giving of a person's wealth. But often because a slave received such kind treatment that they were part of the family, loved by the master, cared for, voluntarily they would yield their servitude to them permanently. That was very often what occurred. And they became a permanent family member willingly. And it was part of a public ceremony where they would go to the doorpost and they would have the master pierce their earlobe to the doorpost with an awl. So there was a permanent mark left on them that they had freely and willingly offered up themselves, submitted to the, the household of the master and become part of the family, part of the loving household. And that's a picture for us spiritually, of being set free, but then choosing to stay and serve the master out of love. This is not a support for slavery of humans, but is a spiritual picture for us to consider. In Christ, we are set free from the bondage of sin to be bond slaves of Christ. That is our title. So it's not just reserved for Timothy and for Paul or Silas or some of these other main names that we find in Scripture It is the title for every Christian. So that's who Paul and Timothy are. And let's just look real quickly at the recipients of this letter. Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So he says all the saints, so it's specifically to believers in Philippi, but also to their leaders of the church. Those who are saved by the grace are saints. This is not a sainthood that is achieved by some special person because they have checked so many things off of a box that 
earn them a right or a status into sainthood as some religions would teach. We don't find that anywhere in Scripture that one has to do so many miracles and then be prayed into sainthood and voted by others. A saint is a Christian. A saint is a Christian. The definition of the Greek word for saint is hagios, and it means set-apart ones. It means separated, sanctified ones. It means to be different, to be set apart, to be distinct and holy as those called to God through faith in Jesus Christ. In salvation, we are set apart. We are distinct. We are called holy. We are called separated from, separated from this world and sin and found in Christ. So the fundamental idea here is separation and consecration and devotion to the service of God. So if you are a believer, you are a saint. So to the saints at the church in Philippi, but also to the overseers and elders and the deacons, uh, overseers and elders, the same word there. We have a Greek word, episkopos, for elders, and diakonos, for deacons. The elders were leaders of the early church. They're the under-shepherds of Christ, Christ being the head of the church, and then elders established as those who equip the saints, those who teach, those who serve, those who protect from false doctrine, and then the deacons were the servants to the elders, helping to administer to the needs of the church, and it is to everyone, but this letter is to everyone in the church, and to those of us today who are the church. Uh, something uh, about deacons, we don't have that office set up yet here in our church, but that is something soon to come. We're looking more into that, uh, but we do have an eldership-led church, and soon we will have deacons supporting the elders uh, by the grace of God. <laughs> verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the verse we're ending with today. This grace that Paul always greets with is that of God's grace. And we understand grace as being that favor that is undeserved, but is given anyway. We are recipients of his grace. We are saved by his grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. In, Philipp- in sorry, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not a result of our works, lest any man should boast. That is our definition, our understanding of grace, according to the scriptures. And by this grace, we have peace from God. Christ's redeeming sacrifice brought us into a peace relationship with God. Phil was talking to the children about you know, that enmity that exists between us and God because of the rebellion of man in the garden. We all inherited that sin. We all are condemned in that sin. But because of Christ and his substitutionary atonement, we are, that, that enmity with God is erased through faith in Jesus Christ. We are no longer his enemies, but Christ has brought us peace. Ephesians 2, 13, 14, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And the name that is used there of Christ is Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is using the full name because it embodies so much in its meaning. His name is Jesus, and he is the Christ. He is God's anointed, meaning he is the Messiah. God in the flesh who has come to us to be that Redeemer. And he is Lord. 
To be a bondservant of Christ is to have submitted to him as Lord, as master of your life. We do not make, make Jesus Lord. Just because we name Jesus as Lord or we say this little phrase, you know, I've made Jesus my Lord. We didn't, we didn't make Jesus Lord. Jesus has always been Lord. Jesus is Lord. Our response is submitting to him as Lord. It is a, an act of submission, yielding to the will and control of Jesus Christ, submitted to his lordship. The true profession of faith should be backed up by evidence of that faith. If we call him Lord and we go out and we live our life just like the rest of the world around us, have we really submitted to him as Lord? Calling him Lord means that we have been changed by him. He is ruling over us as master, as Lord of our life. We have yielded to the will and control of Christ, submitted to his lordship. What should follow is obedience to his commands. And it's not just one act of obedience and say, I'm done. You know, I've bought my fire insurance. Now I'm going to go out and I'm going to live uh, like everybody else. But it's a continued of obedience empowered by the Holy Spirit within our lives. Matthew 3.8, that we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It is a continual thing. And while man can look to the outside, God sees the heart. So when we proclaim with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, have it also given evidence that we've believed in our heart? Have we given evidence that we have believed in our heart? And that's what God sees. A person is used by God who is willing to bow, who has bowed the knee before God's sovereignty and claimed his as Lord. And that continuance is a mark of genuine salvation. It's not by our effort, but it's by his enabling power within us. And so our lifestyle should be one that proclaims his, him as Lord every day. Not just Lord today, but Lord forever. This is the Apostle Paul that we've been reading about. A man who was willing and sold out to the will of God. Who had a joy indescribable, though his physical life was threatened and he experienced hardships like we'll probably never experience. He was able to have a genuine joy because, as Paul will later say in this letter, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this instruction, and we can find so much meat in your word that is at the beginning in just a couple of verses, and even looking at the background and what we have in the study of this book, we pray that you would lead us with clarity and lead us with wisdom as we just probe the depths of your truth. God, that you would enrich our lives with it, and we would, like Paul, be able to find and have this joy that surpasses all understanding that guards us in Christ Jesus, recognizing that we can only know this joy and have it if we have a saving relationship with you. God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who offers that peace relationship with you through his sacrificial atonement on the cross, that he took our sins, that he bore them there, that he died for them, and that he overcame the grave on the third day, and he is now seated at your right hand as Savior and also as Lord. If we had not claimed his lordship, God, may it be today or before we ever perish from this earth that we have called him Lord. And it's not in eternity where we will bow the knee regardless. And we, he will say to us, depart from me for I never knew you. Lord, may we know him now. And we pray that that is evidenced by our submission to that and through walking out a life of obedience to you. 
in the love of you, God, and the love of others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.